Uh, I've been going through the book of Hebrews for a few months. I think I'm going to be in it for a while. Um, and uh, right, we're like almost right in the middle of Hebrews. I, I, I took a break from it for a few weeks, but I'm back um, preaching out of Hebrews. And as we go through the book of Hebrews, we come across this very mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Who's ever heard of Melchizedek? Anybody here? Okay, Melchizedek is uh, very... I'm going to have to say his name a lot during the sermon, so if I mess it up, um, please excuse me. There's another name by... His name is um, Kedolehomer, <laughs> and so I'm going to also have to say his name, so if I mess it up, please forgive me. But as we read through this book, um, there's a whole chapter dedicated to Melchizedek. Uh, he came up here and there as we he, the author was uh, talking about Jesus as the high priest. But in chapter 7, and that's the chapter that we're on this week, there's a whole chapter that's dedicated to this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And it's like a character study on this person, uh, according to the author of Hebrews. Like we know, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Um, he's writing to a bunch of Jewish Christians that are being persecuted in the first century church. But we don't know who, who the author is. It's, it's kind of written anonymously. Um, but we, he, he, we know that he's a very, like, uh, a well-studied man. He writes, no, this is before Google, this is before we, there was an internet. He writes this book and he has so many references to Old Testament scripture uh, that he probably may not have had access to. It wasn't like, you know, these scrolls were just lying around. You have to go to the tabernacle and only like the scribes can read them and the priests can read them. But he, he has it memorized to the point where, where he's able to, re- like, write so much uh, Old Testament scripture uh, from the, the the first five books of the the Hebrew scriptures, and so he's very educated, and he really goes back to a lot of historical things to convince these Jewish Christians, hey, Jesus is better, and that's the heart of this book. It's the heart. The message of this book is basically saying Jesus is better, Jesus is greater than anything that um, you know, anything that the law or whatever Jewish tradition can offer you. Saying that Jesus is better. Uh, now, there's this figure named Melchizedek, and the reason uh, Melchizedek, he's a mysterious figure, and, and it's because, you know, very little is written about him, uh, and when we read what little there is about him in the Old Testament, it's weird, because he just pops up out of nowhere, and he kind of just disappears, and he never talked about until like hundreds of years, thousands of years later, comes up in a psalm, and then that's it, right? He's just this mysterious figure. And um, and the scripture that the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about is Genesis 14. Genesis 14, talking about Abraham. This is where we first hear about Melchizedek. Uh, so let me just set the scene. Genesis 14, Abraham has left his homeland. Uh, he's with his nephew Lot. Uh, and Lot's always getting Abraham into trouble. And he, they go through Egypt. You know, they have their time in Egypt. And then they get to this place called Negev. And they decide to split up, right? And so Abraham tells his nephew, he's like, hey, if you go west, I'll go east. If you go east, I'll go west. Let's split up because the, the ground that we're on cannot support all of the livestock we have. They've become quite wealthy. The Bible said that Abraham has become quite wealthy at this time. And so they decide to sit, split up and Abraham gives him the choice. And, and Lot, he looks to the um, Jordan you know, Valley and he sees that Jordan River and this beautiful area was all lush with vegetation. And he decides to go east to the Jordan River, which is actually Sodom. And you guys know about later on, we'll have the whole Sodom and Gomorrah. But he chooses Sodom as where he's going to settle down. And then Abraham decides to go west, and he settles in Canaan. 
Uh, and so Abraham's just doing what he's doing. He's raising his livestock, you know, having, you know, like, you know, taking care of his business. And then this war breaks out out of nowhere. It's a, it's a, and when you read this, it like reminds me of Lord of the Rings, right? I don't know if, who loves Tolkien and Lord of the Rings here. Anybody here? I love Lord of the Rings. I love like all of that, you know, knights and all that stuff. But it, it really looks like a scene from the Lord of, Lord of the Rings because there's these kings that rule the land, right? There's all of these like minor kings that rule the land. There's this one king that rules them all named Kedo Lehomer. I hate his name. It's so hard to pronounce. And, and it says in verse 4 of uh, Genesis 14, it says, 12 years they had served Kedo Lehomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And so these kings, they're like, hey, you know, you're, you're not the best, and so we're going to rebel against you. And then in verse 8 of Genesis 14, there's a standoff between Ketoleomer and his alliance of four kings. So there's him and three other kings come together, and then there's the king of Sodom and the alliance of five kings, right? So there's like alliance of four kings and alliance of five kings, and they just like start to battle each other. And and Ketoleomer and his alliance of four kings, they win, right? And then they start chasing the, the enemies, you know, all the way to, you know, like they make them flee, and then they take possession of the spoils of war and one of those spoils happens to be Lot and his family because where did they settle? They settled in in Sodom and Sodom, the king of Sodom got defeated and so now Ketoleomer and his and his friends, his homies get to like, you know, take possession of that land and Lot and his family has been to be one of them. Now Abraham hears about this and he's like, I can't let my kinsmen, I can't let my family like be taken like this, you know, because he's, he's you know, he's, he's gangster like that and so he takes 318 of his trained men from his household, right? So, you know, he has a big, he's like a huge tribe here, right? Abraham, even though, you know, he may not have had, you know, offsprings of his own, right? He has all of these servants, he has all of these men that are, that are uh, connected with him. So he takes 318 of his trained men, and he goes by night, and he divides his forces, like the Hebrew special forces, right? And he, he goes into the tribe, he goes into the Ketoleomer's uh, his armies, and then he, they defeat him, right? And, and Abraham, uh, by, with his, with his crew, they go and they take out Ketolehomer and his alliance, and then they run them off, and he takes back spoils that, you know, were lost, including his nephew Lot, right? So now Lot is back, you know, you know, safe and sound with his family. And then this is, now I talk about this because this is where Melchizedek pops in out of nowhere, right? And it starts in verse 17 of Genesis 14, it says, after his return from the defeat of Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet. Talking about Abraham, um, that is, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, out of nowhere, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Uh, I just want to mention um, the king of Salem. Melchizedek never mentioned as any of the kings that are part of this alliance of both sides. Uh, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, that's the only thing that's mentioned of Melchizedek in, in all of the Old Testament until we get to Psalm 110. Now, this is a psalm that King David writes. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is written prophetically about the coming Messiah. And David mentions him, and he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? So 
That's all that's mentioned of this Melchizedek in uh, the Old Testament. And then there's uh, and then there's nothing about him all throughout the Bible until we get to the book of Hebrews. And then the writer, the author of the book of Hebrews, talks a lot about this figure Melchizedek. And, and we're going to read it from chapter 7 in my Bible here. Um, Hebrews chapter 7. And we're just we're going to read from 1 through 10 for now. And it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father and mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning or of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of, of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly offering have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, talk about Melchizedek, by one of whom is to, it is testified that he lives. One man even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, pay tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We'll, we'll stop there. And so, um, you know, my title today is called The Mystery of Melchizedek, right? And as we read this, we get this recap about Melchizedek and kind of this explanation about who he is, and, and he is compared to Jesus in a sense. Um, however, when it comes to solving the mystery of who this person is, right, the book of Hebrews is still not very helpful. Right? And this is all that's written about him in all of Scripture. And was Melchizedek a real person? Right? Some people think you know, he might have not been a real person. Or was he an actual king and a priest that existed back in history? If so, was he truly without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life? Right? Because that's what it says about him. If he really was a king, was he like this? Or, and a lot of people see Melchizedek in this way, and there's evidence to support this theory, is Melchizedek a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Right? A lot of people, even you know, respectable theologians, believe that Melchizedek is this is like a theophany or a Christophany in a sense. Is a, a man of visible manifestation to humankind of God or of Christ, right? And we see this in Genesis 18. Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by these three men, and the way that the writing talks about it is that one of these three men is he calls him like God, right? And so God, in a sense, appears to Abraham in the form of these three men. So there is this kind of theophany, Christophany kind of history uh, in the Bible, right? And when it comes to this mystery, I'm sorry to say it will remain a mystery, right? Because I, I like, I read this, the reason why I've, I've been on this chapter for a while is because I try to read and study this to the point where I can come up with a, a concrete answer and say, yes, he was this, but no matter how hard I try, I could not, right? There's no way to really know, right? So the mystery will still remain, right? 
One day when we go to heaven and we see Jesus, we can ask him, yo, were you Melchizedek, right? Like, was that you, right? We're going to ask you, there's a lot of questions I have to say for Jesus when I see him face to face, but we will not solve this mystery today. It will remain like the end of Inception, right? One of the worst endings, I believe, in the history of movies because it's so aggravating, right? Like, you know, have you ever seen Inception where the, he twist, turns the top and if it falls, he's in reality. If it doesn't, he's still stuck in some Inception somewhere, right? Like, like, but we don't know, right? This is just, everything is so mysterious about this guy in all of the scriptures, the very little that's written about him. And so there is no answer today. I cannot, I don't have an answer for you of who this Melchizedek is. And, and although we cannot solve this mystery today, I believe the point isn't to discover if Melchizedek was Jesus or not, or who he was, I believe when we see Melchizedek, we are to see him as a type of Christ. Meaning, a picture of what Jesus is like. His attributes mimic that of Jesus. And this is what the author of Hebrew points to. He's like, he's like Jesus is, in, is from the order of, in the priestly order of Melchizedek. There is a lot we can learn from the role that he had and the position that he carried in his description from Genesis 14 and from Hebrews chapter 7. And it's mainly this understanding that he was both king and priest. Right? He, was, he was a king, but he was also a priest. He was a king of Salem, he was a king of, of righteousness, but he was also the priest of the Most High God. Now this idea of a king-priest for the people of Israel was inconceivable, right? You, you just could not have a king who also did the role of a priest. Right? God made it very clear that the kings would come out of the tribe of Judah, and the priests would come out of the line of Levi, right? And there was this separation. It's like checks and balances in our government, right? You know, if I'm a congressman and I become president, I have to stop being a congressman. I can't be both, right? There's this checks and balances in, in, in the government. In the same way, God kind of create this natural checks and balances between the king and the priest. And, and we see in 1 Samuel 13 that King Saul, remember handsome King Saul, right? he actually loses his kingship because he violates this. Right? The Philistines are gathered to wage war against the Israelites and they see the size of the Philistine army and they're like scared. They're like, oh. And some of them are fleeing, some of them are hiding in caves. And Saul... He's waiting on Samuel to come. He's supposed to come in seven days. They're camped out. And he can, he can see that his soldiers are getting so scared. And so he decides to, to sacrifice burnt offerings by himself, right? And then so he calls for the burnt offering and the, you know, all of these offerings. And he does it. And right when he gets finished, Samuel comes. And in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 13, he says, What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at, at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling in Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me in Gigal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, said Samuel. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will, be in, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him ruler of his people. And because you have not kept the Lord's command. What was the Lord's command? Kings should not offer sacrifices. But there's a separation, right? Kings do kingly things, priests do priestly things, right? So a king priest was unheard of in Israel. And I believe that God gives this limitation to the position of king and priest 
Because one man in his fallen state can't handle being both. It's just not too, it's impossible for one man. That's too much authority, too much power. But we see that Jesus, as being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek was both king and priest. He fills the role of both king and priest perfectly. He is the ultimate king-priest. Right? And while all of the other kings of Israel came through the lineage of Judah, and although Jesus did, in a sense, come through the lineage of Judah, right? Because his, his, his adopted father was from the lineage of Judah, right? Mary wasn't. He, he, and he came through the lineage of God. He's the son of God, right? And then all the other priests came through the lineage of Levi, right? All the descendants of Levi. You know, Jesus' priesthood does not come from that lineage. He comes from the lineage of the priests of the God Most High, the lineage of Melchizedek. And although there is this mystery surrounding the person of Melchizedek, in the end, King David, as well as the writer of Hebrews, sees the significance of the Messiah being a king-priest, both king and priest, that is greater than all of the other kings, and that is greater than all of the other priests that came before. Not only is Jesus our ultimate example of righteousness, justice, and judgment, right, which comes from his role as king, right? the king is involved with that judgment, justice, righteousness, He's also the ultimate caretaker of our soul. And as the ultimate figure to stand between us and God and bring salvation to our soul. And so Jesus is our king and also our great high priest. And let's start with his role as, uh, over us as king. Right? This comes with huge implications for our lives. And I want to ask you today, is Jesus king of your life? Does because he truly is worthy to be king. He's worthy of our fealty. You guys know what that word is, fealty? Right? Like all of the commonwealth people might know, right? That word we don't use anymore. It's like allegiance to like a king, allegiance to a lord. Because most of us don't live under a monarchy, right? And even if we do, it's not like the monarchy of the Bible. You know, there's Queen Elizabeth, right? I watched three seasons of The Crown and I kind of gave up. But when you watch it, you know, she's a great woman, right? She's a great queen, queen. Right? She's probably the longest monarch in, I think, British history, right? She's super old, but looks super healthy, right? I think she's going to live for another 20 years. With modern medicine, who knows, right? But she doesn't have this kind of authority that a king or a lord had back in biblical times. You know, like, especially in the Old Testament, the king had pretty much absolute authority. People lived as subjects of the king. If the king said, do this, you did it. Right? If the king said, jump, he said, how high, right? And us living in our modern world, we don't understand this because no one in this world has this kind of authority over us. Maybe in North Korea, but not here. Maybe in a dictatorship, but not in South Korea. Definitely not in America. Right? And this is a tangent that I'm kind of going on. I believe that that the devil is and the Satan is super afraid of North Korea becoming liberated. Because people in North Korea know what it is like for someone to have absolute authority of their lives. For the past like over 56 years, they know what it's like for someone to have absolute authority over their life. And when people like this give their lives over to Jesus, they know how to live with Jesus having absolute authority over their lives. 
And you guys might not know this, but there are a lot of secret Christians in North Korea. Some of them are remnant Christians, meaning they were saved before the war. They were saved, or their parents were saved, and they were passed on through like parents, you know, ministering to their kids. There's Christians that have been been converted through missionaries that 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 go in sneaking Bibles in. You know, we met a few of them when we were in our old campus, and so we met one day that came to our church and talked to us, and it was very hush hush and secret, right? Because you know, like they couldn't know his name or they couldn't know anything about him because. He was still doing this. He, he had a, a business and he was going into North Korea all the time. He was smuggling in Bibles and little uh, USB things and so that they could read it and all this stuff. And when, when revival, you know, when North Korea and South Korea are reunited and this regime falls and revival breaks out, you know, do you know the type of revival is going to break out when North Korea opens up? This kind of example of faith. Where it's the people that truly understand what it is for someone to have absolute authority over their lives, and then they give that authority over to Jesus. Right? They'll go to the ends of the earth. Right? This is going to be amazing. And I mentioned that because a lot of us living in a country like South Korea or in America, we don't understand what it's like for someone to have absolute authority over our lives. The president can't make you do anything. You know that, right? You pay your taxes and that's it. Right? You can't, like, there's rules and laws, but like nobody can make you do anything. This idea of lordship and kingship kind of falls flat with us. But you guys, Jesus is our king. You guys, we have to get this into our mindset and into our hearts. He has to be our king. He is the son of God. He is king. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy. He's truly worthy. He deserves our allegiance and our fealty. His kingship is worthy. He is worthy to be Lord over us. And I want to ask you today, is He Lord over your life? And Hebrews 7 tells us that the name Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. And He was King of Salem. Salem is another word for Shalom, which means peace. Salem is like a Canaanite way of saying peace, which, which is shalom. And so Jesus is king of righteousness. He is king of peace. And when we do, do a word study on righteousness and peace, we see that these two words often are linked together in the Bible. They come hand in hand. Isaiah 32, 17, it says, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness is quietness and trust forever. James 3 and 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Psalms 85, 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. It's a great way of saying that righteousness and peace kiss each other. Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified, Justified is another word for being declared or made righteous in the sight of God. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's really what I wanted to pull from this, is that Jesus being our king of righteousness, perfect righteousness, is God, he's perfectly righteous, there's nothing bad, nothing false, there's nothing that's not righteous about him. And when we truly make him our king, right? When we truly put ourselves under his authority and his rule and reign, and when we, when we truly make Him kick, and I'm not talking about just like confessing with your mouth, like, oh, I believe in Jesus. 
But I'm talking about where you allow Him to rule and reign in your life. Allow His righteous authority to rule your life. You will have true peace in your life. He will be our King of Peace. And it's that peace that Paul talks about. It's a peace that transcends our understanding. It says we'll guard our heart in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go right for us, everything's going to go well, but it does mean that it will have a peace that gives us the ability to go through anything that this world will throw at us. That will be the true peace that God Himself, the King of Peace, will give us. And it comes through us standing on His righteousness. Because He is a King. As we give Him our Lordship, as we say, God, I trust You. I trust You and that You are the King of my life, right? Your word would just be the commandment that's written on my heart. When that truly becomes a reality, God gives us a peace that the world cannot take from us. And you know what? This is the peace that the world is begging for. You know that the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. In America, it's considered $13 billion every year, just, just in America alone. And, and while all of, all of these people, these self-help people want, and all of this, what all these people want to offer is peace. When you get to the heart of it, they want a peace in their lives, right? You know, like whether it's like therapy or whether it's like lifestyle coaching, I don't know, it's a thing, you know? Or it's that Japanese lady that teaches you how to organize. She's really good at helping me to throw things away. I mean, I threw away so much of my stuff. I, like my pants, like I'm like, where are these pants? I threw them away. Why? I still wear. Them. And, and, and these things aren't bad. What's her name? Mary Kondo or something? Yeah. And these things aren't bad, right? Or being organized is not bad. Like you know, having therapy is not bad. But all of this will only bring us a semblance of peace in our life. Just, just, uh, just a, just a little bit of peace, right? It can only give us a peace to a certain degree. And many times when our situations or our circumstances change, our peace changes or it goes away. How many, that happens to me so many times in my life where I just feel like, ah, you know, like my situation is going well, I feel so much peace. And then God tests my faith and I realize something bad happens. I'm like, ah! But you know what? Jesus is the, he's the one that calms our storm. Remember when, when they're on the boat and all the disciples are like, oh, what do we do? Right? And Jesus gets up and is like, oh, you have little faith. Right? You know, if it was up to Jesus, he would have slept through that storm. Only reason why he calmed the storm wasn't for himself. He did it for the disciples. Right? And he is our king of peace. And his peace does not come from this world. It doesn't even come from within us. Right? People say, find your inner peace. You know those people, oh, you need to find your, I think Oprah said that, or I, I don't know who. But what happens when I look inside and there's no peace? How do I find something that is not there, right? How do I find something that is, is I, I can't find, right? It's easy to say find your inner peace when you have a good, good job, a good husband, you make good money, financially secure, you have healthy, well-adjusted kids living in a good neighborhood. What about the single mom living in the inner city who has one child that's hooked on drugs and is about to go to jail? Or the person with a family member that's sick? Or the wife whose husband is cheating on her? 
What happens when peace is a commodity that seems to be so lacking in the world around you? What happens when you try to look for your inner peace and it's not there? Whatever peace that we may find in this world will be lacking and it will be fleeting. And it will not be true peace. But we have a king of peace who offers us true peace. The peace that starts from the salvation of our souls and brings us into a life where we are able to trust a righteous king who loves us, who is for us, who is perfectly good, who is faithful, who is just. And he tells us that if we truly make him our king, if we submit to him, if we submit ourselves under his lordship, his rule and reign, he will become our everything. He will transform us from the inside out. We will be people that live victorious lives. That he, that we will use, he will, he will use us to advance the kingdom of God. He will use us to be salt and light. He will use us to be carriers of revival. And we will have a peace that the world does not understand. It's not self-help, it's God help, right? What happens if I can't help myself? It's because God is there. He says, I'm here to help you. I can give you peace that this world cannot take from you. Let me tell you, you have not felt peace until you experience the peace that comes from the King of Peace. There's a lot of times where God offers me this peace, but I'm always just like, oh, it's okay, I'm just going to hold on to this. I think this gives me peace for now, Jesus, right? I feel like I just, if I have this, then I'll feel at peace, so it's okay. And then that thing goes away, and I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. And Jesus is like, hey, I've been here all along. I'm offering you true peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And it's a holistic peace. You know, God wants to encounter us in a holistic way. He wants to encounter the whole, our whole body, our whole self, everything about us. And it's a piece that says everything that you are, every aspect of your existence from now until forever is in his hands. And on his righteousness, saying, you know what, I have you in my hand. And this is the peace that we get from the, the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace. And we access it through what? We access it through faith. Grace through faith. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to buy it. We don't have to spend $13 billion a year trying to get it. He gives us a peace. He's saying, if you put your trust and faith in me, I will give you a peace that the world has nothing on. And I've seen people live in this way. People that that have, they, they find their peace from God. And just the world around them is just going crazy. And they're just like able to be at peace. It doesn't mean that they enjoy it. Doesn't they mean you know, they're not masochists? They don't enjoy the struggle, but what they do is they enjoy God, and as they enjoy God, they're able to endure through anything that the world will throw at them. And we access it through grace, and this brings us to the subject of grace, which is Jesus' priestly ministry. He's our king. That's his his kingly ministry. But he, you know, Melchizedek was both king and priest. And this is his priestly ministry. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise 
after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. He's saying the system, like man, is imperfect, is faulty. A sinful man, no matter how reputable, how clean and holy his life may be, is a poor representation, or is a poor representative between man and God. That's what a priest is. A priest is a representative between all people and, and God. The sacrifices they made could not bring true atonement into the life of Jesus as our high priest. Not only does he stand in the gap between man and God, but it's through his life and death, by him becoming the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, that through the grace offered to man from what he did on the cross, we are brought into this true hope and this true relationship with Jesus. This is his priestly ministry. He's the priest. He's supposed to stand in the gap between man and God as a high priest, right? The priest would go into the Holy of Holies, right? He would go in there and he would, he would be the man's representative to talk with God and commune with God. But Jesus becomes this perfect communal connection between, between man and God and it happens through his ministry of dying on the cross, giving himself, sacrificing himself as the perfect sacrifice. Verse 15, it says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's because God, Jesus, was he had an indestructible life. It doesn't mean that he couldn't be killed. But he rose again. He conquered death. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for, one, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and unusefulness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The Bible tells us that this is an eternal priesthood. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus, he's not dead. He's not just some figure that lived and taught a bunch of things to a bunch of people. People think Jesus is this way. He's a prophet. He's a man. He had had some good ideas. Right? A lot of people think, oh yeah, Jesus had some good ideas, but they think that he's dead. He said his thing, he taught his teachings, he did, you know, what he, what he, you know, he came and said what he wanted to say, and now he's gone. And Jesus, he's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for us, he's interceding on our behalf, he is rooting for us, he is cheering us on, and he's with us, he's with us. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. He's with us. Verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no end. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. So that's his ministry. His, his priestly ministry is to be the sacrifice, to be, to offer up himself, you know. You know, like priests, they offered sacrifices, right? Every year, they would all bring their goats and their rams and their pigeons and you know, whatever that they wanted to sacrifice. They would bring to the altar and he would, you know, like, say a prayer, cut, you know, bleed them. He would, they said the temple would run red with blood, right? It would flow all the way down the side of the, the hill all the way down to the river, the Kidron Valley would be would run pink. All of those sacrifices meant nothing. But Jesus, he sacrificed himself. He said, you know what? This is my priestly ministry. I will stand in the gap between man and God. And I will be what ushers them into the presence of God. This is the perfect priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And although today the mystery of Melchizedek may not have been found, we see that it all points to Jesus. He is our king priest. He is the king of righteousness. He is our king of priests. And he is the, the high priestly role. He offered up the perfect sacrifice. He offered up himself. And because it is all based on his righteousness, not on ours, and, and his peace and his great sacrifice and grace, he is able to save to the uttermost. He, he, say, he saves to the uttermost. doesn't matter how wicked or how horrible may our lives may have been, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He saves to the uttermost. Now I want to ask you today, is Jesus your priest and king? Because His priestly ministry brings us grace through faith through his sacrifice, but his kingly ministry requires lordship. He is perfectly both. And I want to ask, is your life submitted to him? A lot of, it's, it's, it's that answer. It's like, you know, like, a lot of times we look to Jesus as his priestly ministry only. We're like, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I used to do that when I was young. I used to like mess up. I would get like, you know, suspended from school and the school would, we call my call my parents and I'll be on the way home like Lord Jesus forgive me right? please forgive me <laughs> that's, that's his priestly ministry but he's also king and he requires us to submit under his lordship we have to see him as our king we have to let him rule and reign in our lives is he king and priest to you I want to ask you today but here's the amazing part he comes to us as king and as a priest, and he does this. He offers us relationship. Some of you guys, you know, from Britain or wherever, you guys, you guys know of the queen. He's on, she's on your money. You guys sing songs about her, but th- none of you guys know the queen, right? And there's no access for you to actually go and know the queen, right? You try to go up there, you probably like get beat up or shot, right? And, and you know, some of you guys know of the Pope. Who knows what the Pope's name is, right? Pope Francis, right? I have to Google that, right? I don't know who he is, right? Last Pope I really remember is Pope John from like when he was in LA. He, he was in that car that was made out of glass and, right? I don't know much about the Pope, but then, you know, like we can know, learn about him, but there's no way for us to know the Pope, right? Personally. 
But Jesus, He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's our great high priest. And He comes to us and He says, I want to know you. That's the amazing thing about this. God Himself comes and says, I want to know you. Even before all of this, He's like, I just want to get to know you. I want you to know me. Not just about me, but I want you to know me. The King, the priest, is our God. And, and, and it requires our surrender. It requires us to not just look to His grace through faith. And yes, we, we trust God and He brings us salvation. But is He Lord of your life? Is He Lord of your life? And, and does He rule and reign in your life? Because, you know, the Bible talks about, it's a very scary verse where He says, you know, there will be a time when people will come to Me and like, oh, have I not done this in your name? And have I not done that in your name? And it's like, Jesus, you know me. And he's like, you know what? I don't know you. I, to me, if I wasn't saved, that would, that would freak me out. But, but you know what? It's never to scare you. It's always to draw you into a relationship. You know, Jesus is not up in heaven looking down at you, trying to judge you. A lot of people look, look at God that way. They think that, ah, oh, He's up there trying to judge you. No, He's up there and He's saying, hey, I want a relationship with you. I want to connect with you. I want to be your king. I want to be your priest. I want to, I want to, I want, to, I want you to allow my righteousness to rule and reign in your life so that good things happen to you. And I want to be the, the caretaker of your soul that you can be with me forever. And that is His role, Jesus Christ. He is our King, He is the King of Righteousness, He is the King of Peace, He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He's also a great High Priest who died on the cross and He offered Himself as a sacrifice for us. Let's all stand up and let's close with prayer. Father God, we just thank You for for You being who You are, for You being our King. You're the King of Righteousness. You're the King of Peace. You're the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You, you're worthy of our allegiance. You're worthy of our fealty. You're worthy of our, our your Lordship is worthy to be over us, God. And so, Lord, I pray that we will see you truly as our King, as you are also our priest. May we see you as a giver of salvation, as a giver of peace, the one that brings us into the presence of God, the one that sacrificed the perfect sacrifice on our behalf by dying on the cross for our sin. And it's in your kingship and it's in your priesthood that we find our our everything, Lord. We find our, our salvation and we find our relationship with you. So Lord, may we be ones that truly see you as king, and Lord of our lives, and may we see you as the one that has saved our soul. You are the lover of our soul. You are the priest, the great high priest, and you say, I love your soul. I long to be with you. And you offer us this bridge, this connection to the presence of God. And so Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you all of the glory and the honor and the praise. We worship you today. 